So hi, I'm Paul McGregor, mental health advocate and speaker, and you are listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Hello again, Venters. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. So far on the Just Checking Pod, I have checked in with a few female domestic abuse victim survivors. But what about male domestic abuse victim survivors? In this episode, I'm checking in with psychotherapist Jason Hansen. Jason is the author of the book, Domestic Abuse, Men Suffer Too. We talk about Jason's journey from teaching to therapy and how he's carved out this dream career through hard work, perseverance and having important support network. We do a deep dive into the book and find out about the stories behind the statistics of male domestic abuse victim survivors, the different forms of abuse, and why the stats might also be skewed or underreported because of the very high stigma men face and the nature of the industry as well. We also discuss Jason's experience of being bullied in school and the scars that left him with, the transformative effect that fatherhood has had on him, and how he mentally separates from the hugely traumatic experiences he hears from his clients on a daily basis. So this is how my conversation with Jason Hansen went. Jason Hansen, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you for coming on, sharing your story with me. I love the book, first of all, and it's such a necessary one in the space that you work in, in, in the mental health conversation more widely. So how has the feedback been to it and how are you getting on? Yeah, really good, thank you. The book's probably, as I thought, had uh, some really positive feedback, but of course then there have been the odd people who've not necessarily liked the content because they feel that it's it's detracting from domestic violence towards women, and probably one of the reasons why I ultimately removed myself from Twitter because of one or two people that were, were getting quite nasty. But I expected that, in all honesty, and I was warned when I began writing this book that because of the, the very nature of the topic that this is probably what would happen so I'm doing okay thank the you. annoying thing Thanks with twitter and me. social media is that the loudest people are always in the minority and it's those people who end up actually affecting the people who are doing the great work isn't it we've got an absolute yeah, ton of stuff to absolutely. get through including a deep dive into the book so shall we just start the show Let's talk about your professional journey first, Jason, because it's it's gone in a few different avenues in your life so far. So tell me how this journey started and what you did first. When I was growing up, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And even through university and through doing my master's degree as well, I still didn't really have any concept of what I wanted to do. I enjoyed supporting people, I enjoyed listening to people, trying to fix things. And I think ultimately that's what led me into my master's degree, which I did in 2003 at Leeds Met University in psychoanalytic studies. And at that point, I think that was probably the first time when I realized that there was maybe a career that I genuinely wanted to go into and therapy would be it. 
and I sort of readied myself to go into that career but then I met a girl and things completely changed and it went on the back burner for what ultimately would be a significant period of time. After you finished I, your I master's, you were now. looking to, into going to the Sherwood Institute of Psychotherapy in Nottingham. But because of that relationship you had and ended up breaking up in 2005, you wanted to stay well clear, which is which is natural, I would say. Looking back, do you regret that or did you need to have a refresh start away from that city? Well, I was living in Sheffield at the time, Freddie, and the key thing to remember here is that mm. it was my first real uh, relationship in adulthood. And, you know, I'd, I'd met this person in, in August of 2003, suddenly early 2005, we separated and I took it really badly from a personal perspective I, I hadn't just seen this as a relationship I'd planned my whole life with this person so I didn't just lose a girlfriend in my mind I was losing a future wife mother of children you know somebody I was going to grow old with and have a future with because at that time that's what my mindset was as as it quite often is with most people so it hit me hard and going to Nottingham where where she was at the time just wasn't going to be going to be viable you know to have to endure that journey every day with the amount of time and ultimately it did take me a very long time to get through that to the point where probably a year into to see my my now wife I was still having some thoughts and not necessarily thoughts about missing her as a person but more about smells or scenes or photographs or songs would sort of pique those memories and make me smile mm. or, or sometimes make me wonder what if so I think at the time mm. I probably took the right decision I annoyed me in the way that I handled it and, and how long it took me I don't believe I would have been able to focus if I'd have been mm. so close at that you ended point. up then working in a call center in Sheffield until 2000 when you got a job at an organization which helps people with mental health conditions and disabilities into employment which is a really admirable thing to do you were 27 at the time I think I'm right in saying and it was your first proper job so what did you learn about yourself during that period I think that during that period I learned that I really did want to be in a vocation that was supporting people particularly those that are most vulnerable I worked with some wonderful people and I remember once my dad said to me quite a few years ago and I was in that job he said I, I don't know how you do it how do you not come back and cry because I was telling mm. him about some of the people I worked with you know people with severe disabilities that really wanted to work so much and you knew there was only a, a very 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 small likelihood that they would ever find any sort of employment but actually for that one hour you made them smile and you gave them belief and you gave them confidence and that in itself was a job satisfaction not necessarily finding them work but giving them that belief and 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 working with them and never giving up on them and I absolutely loved that and it was something that I did really enjoy doing and I think at that point I learned that whatever my vocation was going to be ultimately something that was going to be able to dedicate my life to helping others mm. was, was you spent a large part of your life there over nine years so you clearly enjoyed it and clearly enjoyed what you gave to people so in that time you wrote and delivered mental health training at a national level and across every branch of that company and let's be honest Jason the mental health conversation in 2011 was a very different one to the one it is now so that can't have been easy to do however in 2013 you had a conversation with your wife where you said I need to do something different. I want to do something that's worthwhile. Why was this moment such a crossroads for you? And where did your life go from that point? 
it's really interesting for you because I remember that day vividly. I remember exactly where I was. I was out walking with my wife and, and two dogs and we're up in the countryside in Penniston and I don't remember what really triggered that, but I do remember that conversation extremely vividly. And I just wanted to do more. And I think at this point, I'd probably got a taste of therapy and gone back to it because it's something that I considered. You know, when I did my first degree, I did a counselling module. In 2003, I supported a doctor's surgery, uh, a very good friend of the family's who was struggling because his, his counsellor was away. So I was unqualified in training and supporting him. And I'd had that taste on more than one occasion and I just kept coming back to it. And I remember that at that point I decided that it really was a time when I needed to do something because there'd been several occasions where I'd had these thoughts and nothing had really come of them. So I felt that if it kept resurfacing, there was a, a time when I would have had to do it. Otherwise, I would have come to regret it and, and maybe look back on it years down the line when perhaps it was too late and I was still asking the same questions mm. of, well, well, what if I'd have done After this? you decided to give therapy a go, you contacted an organisation called Relate in 2012-2013 and they said they had a course available and your master's degree gave you a head start. So what did this period teach you about yourself when you were taking your first, shall we say, baby steps into counselling? I was very fortunate because when I first looked at getting into counselling I was contacting different organisations and different training providers and every single one of them told me that I had to start at level one and if you consider that level six is the masters and you're averaging forget if you pull the masters out of that one up to five is probably going to take you at least uh, you know five years and (laughs) I was impatient I didn't want to wait five years to be a therapist I wanted to do something quickly so I felt like I was very fortunate when I spoke to Relay, who interviewed me and said, actually, no, because of what you've previously done, your master's degree and the counselling modules and some of your previous experiences, you know, like what I'd, I'd done at former organisation training and, and writing mental health materials. And they offered me a position on the master's course um, right at the very top, which was wonderful. But at the time, the lady who interviewed me said that people that come and do a master's in, in counselling usually want a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And I already had one, so there wouldn't be anything really for me to gain by doing a another two to three year master's degree and spending all that money when I could do a level five and do it in, in sort of 12 months time. So that's exactly what I did. And I, I got into level five and I want to say that I learned how to be a therapist. And, and when I say that I didn't necessarily, I don't mean that from an arrogant perspective and, and certainly don't want to detract from the course, but I didn't start to learn about really being a therapist until <laughs> I was probably years into being a therapist <laughs> because that's how it works. But it was a great start and it throws you in at the deep empty when you start doing your placement. And because it was relationship therapy, I was working with couples so that was really interesting, suddenly being sat in a room. And the only thing that got me through the couples was when I sat there, I thought no matter what I say, they probably hate <laughs> each other more than they hate me round about now. <laughs> you said something quite eye-opening to me off air, Jason. You said that counselling is not a strictly regulated profession and that anyone could advertise doing it if they wanted to. Is that true? And given the subject matter of what therapists have to deal with, is that dangerous? Extremely. 
I read an article yesterday that I posted on social media that was saying that there were a lot of people. It was it was about a young man who'd wanted some support and he'd paid someone two hundred pounds for a consultation. If you're charging two hundred pounds, I need to know where this person is anyway. <laughs> and they then followed up paying twelve hundred pounds for successions, which is an astronomical figure. I mean, I know some extremely well qualified therapists that don't charge anywhere near that. And the, the story was awful. You know, this individual said that this person would be getting on trains while they were facilitating therapy and eating dinners and then cutting them off short and cutting sessions after 20, 30 minutes. I mean, that is extremely damaging because when you go to therapy, you open yourself up, you show those vulnerabilities. And if you're doing that and the person isn't trained or isn't qualified to help you deal with that, then you're effectively bringing those things out and being left to deal with them yourself. But in addition to that, it can be completely and utterly counterproductive because you start to develop trust issues then, a fear of disclosure because you're not being listened to. And it can be extremely damaging. However, what I would say on the flip side, Freddie, is that there are a lot of people who aren't qualified therapists Mm. that I think would be fantastic therapists. But on the flip side of that... There are also people who are practicing, who are well accredited and who I think are potentially quite dangerous. And I've worked with some clients who come to me and told me about some of the things they've experienced in therapy previously, some of the things they've been told. Mm, And it's actually quite frightening. Let's talk about when you started your therapy practice then, Jason, which happened in 2014 and it was part time and a big part of that was your late father-in-law building you a summer house at the bottom of your garden where you started seeing clients in there. How grateful are you to him for giving you that? And do you see that as his legacy to you? Yeah, I think incredibly. I, I feel incredibly pleased and, and privileged that he was able to do that for me. I had a, a very close relationship with Barry. And people probably wouldn't know this from the periphery because, you know, it wasn't like we hung out or spoke a lot, but I, <laughs> and we disagreed politically, which was quite interesting, but I really was very, very fond of him. And I took his death incredibly badly. I probably hid a lot of that away from my wife because I was mm. trying to, to be there for her. But the thing to remember is that, you know, he built that practice and then we moved out very quickly afterwards, but he gave me my first base. And the other thing to consider is that once he'd done that and we then moved out after probably about nine or 10 months, he came down here and in 2019 built me this practice where, where I am today, which is considerably more vast, more appropriate. I've got three rooms in here. I've got a bathroom. And quite recently, we put the house up for sale and we accepted an offer and we had an offer back up in Yorkshire, accept on the house that we wanted. And within 24 hours, we changed our mind. And this was one of the big reasons for me. I didn't feel emotionally like I could leave this practice because I'm, I'm not only well established down here, but he built this for me. And this is one of the the lasting memories that I have and one of the things that that really keeps him close to me. So, I mean, he did a lot of wonderful things for us. He was that kind of person. His daughter is Mm -hmm. very much a a daddy's girl and he would do anything for her. So consequently, you know, if, if I wanted something done, 
And I used to get to a point where I thought, oh, I'm not so sure I should ask him, actually. <laughs> I'd just get my wife to ask him because <laughs> because he wouldn't refuse her. So incredibly grateful and fortunate and, and love the fact that we're now here because I get to keep this and this will always be mm. the practice that, that Barry built. Like you said there, Jason, your father-in-law built your new practice now that you are still living in and practicing it in, in January 2019. You moved to Mansfield in 2014. And you also decided to become a teacher at this point. You said to me that this was equally the best decision and worst decision you ever made. So tell me about what you learned in teaching, what were the challenges, and then how did you transition into this full-time therapy dream you have now? I was doing therapy part-time when I lived back up in Sheffield. And it's quite strange because my father had mentioned this to me just a couple of days ago. And he said... I remember several times being out walking with you and, and the dogs down here and I asked you if therapy was something that you could do full time and you, you said not a chance, you know, it just it just didn't happen. And it was really interesting how that came about. But to answer your first question, I toyed with teaching for a long time. I did a pre teaching course at college and I'd gone and shadowed when I lived up in Penniston in South Yorkshire, I'd gone and shadowed a couple of people in in schools for a little bit and I had this idea that teaching would be really good and I went to a teaching open day down here and it looked really good so I thought okay you know I can make this work so I signed up to do my PGCE and I got a job at the college which was supposed to be pastoral supporting students helping them catch up things like that but when I was offered that job, there was somebody off a long-term sick in in, uh, in Access, which is for 19 plus, and they asked me if I would go in and teach history, social policy and sociology. Well, social policy, I had a bit of an interest in, but I'd never taught it. History, I did at school, but I had no experience in it. And sociology, I did at college as well and had a bit of knowledge, so I felt okay. So history was just a case of, of literally <laughs> keeping a week ahead of the students. The students, yeah, it, it was. And I admitted this to the students. They were all the students, some of them, you know, with, with families, many of them with families. And I remember admitting this, and one of them said that she was surprised because she thought that I'd majored in history at university, and that was probably one of the biggest compliments I've ever had. And social policy was pretty much the same and sociology was a little bit, I found a little bit easier. But then the following year, the teaching hours were cut. So I had to take a, you know, it became sort of like a point eight contract then. And I knew that there was a big shake up at the college and a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, sadly. And what happened then is I did, I knew there was an option where I could either go into this new role, which was only going to be support, and I knew what that role was going to entail. And one, I didn't like it. And two, it was taking me down a very different path to what I wanted to go down because I was about to become a qualified teacher. Or there was A-level sociology and politics. And the option came where I could either do one of those subjects or both. Now, at the time, I really quite enjoyed politics and my brother is very, very political and very, very clever. He majored in it at university and, and used to work for some senior MPs when he lived back in the UK. And I thought, actually, I'll give that a go and I'll also do sociology. And the reason I took both on was purely because I couldn't afford to drop from a point eight to a point four because I've gone from part time, I'm dropping many thousands of pounds in my salary and it just wasn't viable. So I gave it a go. The sociology was was fine. What I didn't reckon on was one how difficult politics was going to be to teach as in how much of it there was that I didn't really know. 
and two this keeping a week ahead of the students no longer worked because the type of students that, that would gravitate towards A-level politics were your students who mm. were already quite interested in politics. Some of them would be quite active. And what I found out was a few of them would be quite extreme. And the class became quite disruptive. And I struggled with this because there were topics that would come up that actually they would knew more about than I did. And that was the hardest position for me to be in where I was stood at the front and the students didn't have confidence because at the end of the day this wasn't my topic sociology was a completely different kettle of fish you know sociology I stood up there any supplementary questions that came my way I could answer no problem different types of students the students really enjoyed being in those classes they were very interactive there was nothing really that I didn't know politics very much different so when I said it was the best and worst decision I ever made it was the best decision I made because ultimately I had to go through that adversity to get to the point where I push myself into making full-time therapy work for me and the worst decision because obviously I had to mm. go through that adversity in the first place and it was a struggle and I spent probably 18 months or so really unhappy really struggling working a lot of hours just to fight fire i was struggling with a very unsupportive manager at that point who lacked any sort of empathy or understanding and it mm. made things incredibly difficult i then got to that point where i thought that there must be a different way around this and that's ultimately mm. where i came to therapy you know i, I was able to go to relate because I, I sent a speculative email to relate. I was interviewing for a third job there because I was working with my practice in the evenings and weekends, I was working teaching during the day. And then I was going to try and work one to two extra evenings or weekends at relate as well to try and really filter out college and just remove myself from it slowly. And then what happened ultimately is on a, a very chance conversation with relate, the supervisor, she talked about EAP work. So I came and researched EAP work and realized that there was a lot of organizations offering, uh, it's the employee assistance program. And there was a lot of organizations, there was a huge, huge need for affiliate therapists. And then I approached the college and told them that they kind of already knew, but I approached the principal and told them that I'll be happy to, to work as a therapist with some of their students because I knew there were large waiting lists. And consequently, January of last year, so almost almost two years ago, I quit teaching. Well, I handed my notice in from teaching and ultimately finished in May. Started working with the college students. I had a contract with college for the year and started working with several EAP providers. And I have to say that since May of last year, since I went full time, I've been full to the point of turning clients away almost every week. And that's why ultimately college was the best decision I made because had I stayed in a different job and maybe enjoyed it I perhaps would have always stayed part-time in therapy and I wouldn't have been able to enjoy it and reap the benefits of, of working with so many wonderful people and working for myself mm. I want to talk about the book now so it's called <laughs> domestic abuse men suffer too I talked sure. about, talk about it in the intro before we dive in this journey into writing or being an author or public advocacy whatever you want to call it began with an interview with a woman's focused outlet 
you had never heard of, but actually turned out to be quite big. Can you tell the listeners about that? Yeah, I was writing for the local paper down here in Mansfield for probably nearly three years. And some of the articles that I, on all, all sorts of mental health matters, and some of the articles that I wrote, I would periodically send off to my accrediting body, National Counseling Society, sometimes a counselling directory. In January of, I want to say maybe about 2000 and. 18 or 19 I got this phone call randomly on my home phone I thought it was someone just trying to sell me something I'm gonna be honest because what I sometimes get is I, I get people that will ring me up and say that they're from a funeral parlor or they're from a doctor's surgery and I can go in their magazine and get in front of thousands of people every month and I just have to pay this money and I just figured and I was only half listening so I was doing something at a time and my wife rang me in and I, I nearly said to my wife, I said, look, I'm on the phone. I'm on the other phone. I'll call you back. And I nearly said to her, look, you know, I'm just going to get rid of this call because I'm pretty sure it's salesy. And then this, this lady carried on talking and she mentioned an article that I'd written on eating disorders. And I said, oh, OK. And said she'd come across that. And she said she was from a magazine and I'd never really heard of the magazine. And I said, oh, are you are you local? And she said, no, we're, we're national. <laughs> And it turned out to be Closer magazine, which was which was surreal. And, you know, afterwards I started Googling and, and looking at the, how many readers and how big they were. And I was like, wow, this comes in like the top 20 magazines in, in like the, the country. This really is big. And she wanted to talk to me about an article I'd written on eating disorders. She was writing an article on, on gastric bands and said she'd come across my article and she really wanted to interview me. So there and then I took the interview. And I remember saying to her, she said, well, what are your views on gastric bands, Jason? And I said, well, it's a bit like sticking a plaster over a bullet wound. And she's like, oh, I like that. I'm going to quote it. And I said, well, she said, but what do you mean? And I said, well, when it comes to eating disorders, very rarely is it about food. And it's not always about body image either. There's, there's usually a lot going on underneath. I said, so if you think about a bullet wound and you put a plaster over it, you get rid of the wound. It's not visible anymore. But actually, the, the root cause of that pain is the fact that the bullet is still going to be lodged in your arm. You're just not bleeding anymore. And she said, well, how, how does that compare? And I said, well, think about what a gastric band does. So a gastric band is going to go in. It's going to help you to, to lose that weight. That's great. But it doesn't take away the cause of why you got to that position in the first place. So if it's the fact that you're in an abusive relationship, for example, and you want to maintain some sort of control, your food intake is one of the few things that you can have control over. You know, if you want to go and purge, you can do. If you want to, to minimize what you intake, you, you can do. If you want to binge eat, you, you can do. So your food intake is one of those things that you can control. So you put a gastric band in there, that's great. In terms of the aesthetical appearance, that works. But actually, you don't take away that root cause. And that's exactly what I mean. So, yeah, and I will never forget, Freddie, the feeling of going up to our, my local Asda in the morning before I was going to teach. I'd gone up really early because I knew when I was going to be in there. <laughs> I, I was stood there. I was like a kid in a sweet shop. I was, you know, dancing around. And I was saying to this lady, have you got a Closer magazine in there? And, and I, I, I don't want to say I made her, but I, I, I persuaded her to the point where I think she felt sorry for me <laughs> to open up all the boxes until Closer came out. And she gave me a copy. 
and I did resist all temptation to, to open it up <laughs> to the page and, and go, hey, look, this is me. I didn't get my picture in there. I just got this nice little uh, blurb in there about what the expert says. But it was it was a surreal moment, and I, I still have a copy of that magazine and felt extremely humble because there are lots and lots of therapists out there that have probably far more experience than me, but, but they came to me and it was a truly humbling experience in, and something when my mm-hmm. daughter gets a little bit older. I want to talk about the book now, and I want to set the scene for the listeners about this topic by reading out a tweet at the start of the book you put in from a female victim survivor. So she says, quote, when I was physically abused, I received a police drive by after a death threat was made, shelter and counselling. When my brother was physically abused by his girlfriend, he received laughter from a responding cop and an escort from his home. End quote. Why did you want to put this very powerful quote right at the start of the book? I think you've just hit the nail on the head with that word powerful. I wanted to draw readers into where the issue lies here. And unfortunately, there is such a huge disparity between the way that the genders are treated when it comes to domestic abuse. And I would like to be able to say that this was an isolated incident. It was uneducated or inappropriate or insensitive police officers. But sadly, I can't. And there's a really good example in one of the case studies at the end of the book, which I won't go into right now, where something very similar happens. But in, in terms of the cops will turn up and gravitate towards the male, regardless of what's happening, remove the male, ask the female if they're okay. And I work with that. And recently, within the last couple of weeks, I've been working with a client where they were subjected to so much abuse. And as soon as the police came, the first thing they did was question him and go and ask his wife if she was okay. And I would really hope that there were people that would be in the police forces that would get to read this and come across it. And I just want to paint that picture to people to say, actually, there is a real challenge here with the perception of abuse. And, and this stigma and this perception, it potentially fuels the animosity between the male and female advocates and, and the activists within society. So, yeah, I, I wanted to grip people straight away to say, look, this is the cause. I'm going to take you through the book and I'm going to explain what domestic abuse is and the different types. But... I just want you to really see straight away, look at this. And hopefully that was something mm. that did grip You quote some ONS figures in. which show approximately or at least 35% of all abuse reported to the police is done by male victims. So that would indicate by calculation that 65% of victims are women. Given the stigma behind male victims of abuse, which yep. would lead to, I imagine, maybe a lot of underreporting, A, would you say these figures are accurate? And B, you also referenced a murdered male victim of domestic abuse from Lancashire as evidence of this. So can you explain that too? So to take your first point on, part of the book in the opening chapters talks about the statistics and the figures and are they an accurate depiction? And I would say absolutely not. We have no idea. That percentage could be even higher towards women. It could be even higher towards males. Because there are so many different reasons why victims per se across the genders don't come forward it makes it incredibly difficult to really encapsulate what those true figures are. So there are so many different reasons that people won't want to report. And one of the main reasons, of course, is that, and I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people that have read my book, people will have Mm. come across things in there and and thought, I didn't even realise 
that that was considered to be domestic abuse. So if we don't feel like we're being the victims of anything, other than maybe someone just being a little bit mean or a little bit spiteful, then it's not something that we're likely to report. That's the first reason. But then there comes to the denial part where we don't want to admit that someone we are very close to could feel like that and behave like that towards us. In addition to that, then, there is also the fear part. So what's going to happen? And that fear part links in nicely with your second question there. So, yeah, I mean, that was a 51-year-old lawyer in Chorley who was stabbed to death just a couple of months after his wedding by his wife. And his ex-partner in that article reports that she'd spoken to him and he'd said that he was living in hell. He was living in hell. And she said, you need to get out of there before she kills you. And he said, I can't get out of here. And ultimately, they were both right. He couldn't get out. And she was right because his wife serving from 2015, 20 years for murdering him. So the problem that we have with this is that we don't often see articles like this. And we still feel that when we talk about domestic abuse, that we talk about domestic violence, we still make that link that they are one in the same. And when we talk about domestic violence, the statistics will tell us overwhelmingly that it's more likely to be male aggressors and female victims. That's not something I, I think that anyone would really dispute. But the difficulty is that domestic abuse isn't domestic violence. And a lot of the, well, not solely domestic violence, should I say, there are many different forms. And a lot of the males that I work with are people who have been subjected to physical abuse, to emotional abuse. And that is much more prominent but it doesn't come to the forefront for various reasons. And one of those reasons is that somebody who is being controlled or told that they're not the, the father of their doesn't kids... Create doesn't create a bruise, make... does it? Mm. Absolutely not. A that, report that by does. the Mankind Initiative that you write about in the book, Jason, found that in 2018, male victims are over three times as likely as women not to tell anyone about the partner abuse they are suffering from. Only 10% of male victims will tell the police versus 26% of women. Only 23% will tell a person in power versus 43% women. That's quite a big jump. And only 11% will tell a health professional. Do you think people realise just how much higher stigma there is with men when it comes to this abuse? No. I don't think that people really get the picture of what's going on here. I think that there is still that perception that we live in a patriarchal society and that's something that, that radical feminism would, would continue to propagate. That we live in a patriarchal society that men should be stronger than women and shouldn't really be victims of abuse. I have basically read programs like the Freedom Program that will say that women can't be perpetrators. And the only time that men are victims is when it's same sex. And that's a program that still being run out nationally that some social services will sit through that i've even heard that some police departments sit through that so if you've got a program that's basically saying that hey man you can come and sit on this program but one only if you're going to atone for your bad behavior your abusive behavior or two if you've been a victim in a same-sex relationship so that creates this vision straight away that women are always innocent, that women are vulnerable, and that men are the propagators of all abuse. And when you've got national programs that run like that, 
you wonder why people get the attitude and the perception that they do. And that's what makes it difficult. So I don't think we do realize the enormity of, of the task that we face with trying to tackle domestic abuse in a more holistic fashion rather than making it a gendered approach and and having the extreme activists on one side in combat with extreme activists on the other side because that removes the attention mm. and focus from where you it should be. You're also right that a higher percentage of men victims. take their own life after domestic abuse than women. So 11% versus 7.2%. And even more worryingly, which I read, two-thirds of men would not disclose their abuse either. Do you think this comes back to, like you said, you know, not being believed? Is it emasculation? Is it judgment from other men or being laughed at? Or are there deeper issues at play here? Yeah, I think probably all of the above. I mean, you know, women are more likely to make attempts on their own life, whereas men are more likely to succeed. You know, the very clear message is men do not talk. In general, men don't talk. It could be that they feel ashamed. And I've read case studies of people that said they felt embarrassed that they were in this position. It could be that, again, they're, they're in denial, that actually it's just a really bad relationship and it's it's not abusive. But it could be the, the whole, well, who's going to believe me and, and what response am I going to get? Uh, go back to that first quote, am I going to get laughed at? Are people going to going to physically take me seriously? I've worked with a lot of male victims in here that have spoken to friends who have just laughed at them and said, man up. You know, you, you need to, to take some control here. That is quite frightening, you know, when friends are saying that. But I don't think friends are saying that with any malice. I don't mm. think they understand the gravity of the situation. So, I mean, men don't talk about mental health in general. That's a pattern. More are doing so. But in general, men don't talk uh, as much about mental health. But what's really nice for me, in mm. a way, is that I'm working with more and more male clients these days. But I'd be very interested, actually, to see what the percentage is. But I probably work with as many, if not more, male clients across the board with everything mental health-related than I do female clients, which is good because hopefully people are now starting to, to feel more comfortable disclosing. I want to give listeners the, the, the true reality now, Jason, when it comes to how female domestic abusers carry out their abuse. So what methods do they use? What weapons? What psychological tools do they employ? Is it more subtle than male perpetrator methods, for example, or not? Yeah, I mean, we have to remember there are several forms of domestic abuse here. And some of them are more subtle and diplomatic. It's a point where you can question whether or not you're actually in an abusive relationship. One of the things that I've worked with more than anything has been the emotional and or the, the psychological aspects of that. So an abuser is an abuser. We need to remove that, that gender. Every abuser has the same tools at their disposal. It's just whether or not they use them. So whether it's control and coercion, whether it's sexual blackmail, whether it's parental alienation, whether it's belittling or mocking continuously, whether it's going on social media and mocking manhood or sexual performance, they're all forms of, of abuse and things that can have a, a really detrimental effect on an individual, male or female. But you would usually say that the psychological and the emotional aspect is probably more synonymous with the male victims as, as opposed to the physical side, which we perhaps don't mm. see Before as Before we dive into of, emotional abuse, very much one of the many eye-opening things I read in the book, Jason, was that it wasn't until 2003 that the first shelter for battered men opened, 
And as of 2011, there are 4,000 women refuge centres and just 16 for men. So this is despite the statistics you've laid out that at least a third of all domestic abuse victim survivors are men. Another shocking thing I read was that there wasn't a single men's shelter in London, despite the fact that 2018, on average, 150,000 calls to the police from male victims were made. So on the first point, did any of that shock you? And on the second, this would be a national scandal of of care, wouldn't it? If people sort of knew that 150,000 calls were being made, but there was only six, what was it 16, 70, 16, sorry, shelters for men? Yeah, I think that for your first point, did it shock me? Sadly, probably not, because I don't think that it's seen as a priority. And I don't think that people realise the enormity of the situation here. So as I said, there are very much stigmas that are attached to male victims. And it's a lot of the media outlets and a lot of the focus is very much, even the government strategies, the VARG, Violence Against Women and Girls, the language in all of this is very much for female victims. So naturally, you can imagine that, that the shelters and the beds are going to be focused pretty much on, on women only. So because of that, it doesn't shock me. Does it sadden me? Yes, because we're missing a whole cohort of people and it doesn't have to be and this was one of the things that I really hammered away at throughout the book and sadly you know one person that I was I was in a social media disagreement with really didn't see this and instead chose to get quite personal with me domestic abuse is an issue that should be tackled but not domestic abuse towards women and not domestic abuse towards men the problem is domestic abuse and whenever you have both sides and you have that infighting what you have there is you are detracting from what the issue is. And what we need to do is make it more difficult for perpetrators to hide, regardless of gender, to undertake this. We need to be more galvanized and we need to educate everybody to be able to understand what's going on in terms of domestic abuse. So it saddens me, but it doesn't shock me. When you talk about the national scandal, I just think that it's overlooked and probably would need to understand more about the rationale behind this. You know, I'm sure I would get told that it's either not a priority or that they're looking into things. But when you've got so many people, and I, and I think uh, one of the statistics I quoted was it was sort of nearly three quarters of a million. And when you look at that 65 to 35% statistic, that accounted for nearly three quarters of a million men. So where's their voice? How are they heard? How are they supported? And they're only the ones that have disclosed. And you can look at percentage, but when you look at the actual people, circa 750,000, that's a Let's lot talk of about the different forms of abuse now. So emotional is the one I wanted to tackle first. And when it comes to this, children are often used by female perpetrators. You highlighted a couple of examples already when, for example, you said that a male was told that he wasn't the biological father of his children. Another method you gave as an example was of a story you saw on social media and then falsely accused him of assault and called the police. Now, the post was from the woman herself openly boasting about it. Do you think that's a reflection of where we are in the conversation from male victims that she could be so brazen and basically brag about the crime as she did it? Yeah, and I think what was really nice is there was, there was a lot of women who were castigating her for that. But there was the odd person that found it quite funny. 
and I think that you're right and that was something that I wrangled with how I was going to address that in the book and I feel like I did ask the question of what does it say about society where somebody feels that this is actually a way a method that they can use and it and it will be probably quite successful I don't know whether she did call the police ultimately what I know is that in that particular tweet what she'd said was basically the joke was on him because she was calling him to the house under the pretense that he was going to get to see his children. But as soon as he got there, she was going to call the police and say that he'd got violent. And this was funny to her, you know, and the emotional impact that can have on somebody is unbelievable. But then there's the, the physical impact, you know, this person might have to get charged, go through court, social services, not be able to see the children for something that's completely utterly fabricated. And the fact that we would naturally make those steps, first of all, and take those precautions to say, okay, well, we'll remove him without any evidence whatsoever, I think is frightening. And I've worked with this more and more recently, where people have been removed from their homes or removed from seeing their children for something that has absolutely no evidence whatsoever because it has been fabricated. And mm. that is what I find particularly You talk as well about, about the concept of gaslighting, which is a pretty well-known concept in the public conversation largely because of the 2016 election in the US but also guilt projection how are those used against men in ways that perhaps people don't see it's quite interesting because I've I've worked with a, an individual recently for a few sessions I said oh you know does it feel like you you were subjected to gaslighting and suddenly the light bulb comes oh my god yeah I have been I didn't even know I mean gaslighting and, and guilt projection are, are sort of very different things but the gaslighting comes from a, a play originally where the man again and this this creates that gender type really would turn up the lights deliberately the gaslights and then when his wife raised it he would tell her that she was imagining it and that this hadn't really happened and she was then starting to question her own sanity and gaslighting is probably a slightly more diplomatic or subtle way for somebody to abuse and particularly when it comes to female aggressors you know to be able to get someone to question their sanity but again we can talk about physical scars here in something like gaslighting if you start to question your own sanity and your own grasp on the reality that is extremely dangerous if it goes over a prolonged period of time because you then start to second guess yourself with a lot of things but this is what happens an abuser male or female what they will do very well is try to convince you that either this isn't happening or it's your fault so if you've been gaslit you will think actually no i'm just remembering this wrong there isn't really an issue here it's actually the issue is very real. Coercive control is the, the next one I wanted done. to talk about. And it's the invisible part of domestic abuse, which is thankfully okay. getting a, a lot more coverage nowadays, Jason. When it comes to male victims, you write about this idea of intent versus interpretation. So can you explain to listeners who don't know what coercive control is firstly, and then this intent versus interpretation idea too? Yeah, I mean, the thing about the control and, and coercion is that the, the Serious Crimes Act of 2015 was played a really prominent role in, in bringing this to the forefront. Coercion can usually be a single act or repeated behaviour, and it's something that's designed to either intimidate or humiliate somebody or even punish them. When it comes to control, control can be more subtle and diplomatic, just trying to get people to do things. So, you know, you don't need to wear that. You know, you look much better in this. And actually, you know, that friend's not really any good for you. 
I'm all that you need and, and they're saying things about you behind your back and you don't need to really be with them and you can suddenly realize after a long period of time actually i've been completely controlled in this relationship and one of the biggest cases of control and coercion i worked with was somebody that wasn't even in a physical relationship it was with a friend something was platonic but the behavior that they were undertaking to try to get them to do things they didn't really want to do and when you talk about intent versus interpretation it's a massive thing for me because intent is huge and so is interpretation, and one in the eyes of the law and, and one when it comes to individuals. So if you look at the eyes of the law and you talk about you know what is controlling or coercive behaviour, you get a definition. Part of, of that definition is something which the victim feels uncomfortable with. So whatever the intent is, it doesn't really matter at that point. You know, it could be with the best of intentions, but if the victim's feeling this, then it becomes that part of behaviour. But then you need to differentiate between somebody who is maybe undertaking that behavior inadvertently without realizing it and somebody who has the intent and who is doing it very deliberately. So intent and interpretation is, is a concept that I cover throughout the book. And I think it's it's something that's really quite important. You write about some hugely abusive and emasculating things that men are subjected to by female perpetrators in this form of abuse, Jason, particularly having their sexual performance ridiculed they could be accused of being gay if they can't make their female partner ejaculate sexual blackmail is another tool which is also used here and the most extreme one which i'll get you to talk about in a second that female perpetrators use is lying about being on the pill in order to get pregnant without the partner's consent and thus trapping them into the relationship now a lot of my listeners jason will be pretty shocked to hear that such as the physical and emotional labor that comes with being pregnant for women so is that true? And can you just tell me a little bit about these forms of abuse and if it's something that you've seen happen within your clients? Yeah, it's very true. Sadly, it happens. And it can be done to control somebody. It can be done to, to trap somebody in a relationship. It could just be done physically because you want to have children yourself. So in terms of the latter part, certainly. When you talk about the other aspects and, and emasculating men, it is sadly one of the ways that female perpetrators can propagate that type of behavior you know so if you can't satisfy them you you must be gay to mock them on social media and if you were to take two instances so if you were to take somebody who a woman who went on social media and started talking about you know husband can't satisfy me he only lasted a couple of minutes last night you know and then he went limp god is useless if you did that and you look at the response that would generate and then you compare that to if a male went on and said something somewhere about his girlfriend that she was really crap that she was awkward that she didn't know what she was doing it was really not not any any fun i wonder whether there would be any disparity in the responses <laughs> that you would generate there from wider society and that's one of the things when i talk to some people or when i when i've debated with some people it almost feels like what they're wanting to do is to even it up yeah but it's a patriarchal society so it's okay for women to do that because men do this what we're not looking for is excusing behavior on any one side there that is equally as damaging and equally as negative whether it's a male perpetrator or a female perpetrator or a male or a female victim. I want to move on to sexual abuse now because it's one of the most heinous crimes you can commit in society. I'll add for context here that a woman cannot be currently charged with marital rape. Indeed, she can't be 
charged legally with rape in the UK. I should also point out that men weren't even liable themselves to be charged with male marital rape until it was made a crime in the UK in 1991. So given that, is the legal definition fit for purpose when it comes to protecting male victims of sexual abuse? And how do female perpetrators exhibit or commit sexual abuse on their partners? The first thing that you need to think about there is is that point that you addressed in terms of when marital rape was made a crime. That in itself is heinous. When you look at that, for a man or a woman to be able to feel they have a, a divine right because they're married to have sex at any time they want and have their partner, husband or wife, lose any control, any autonomy over what happens to their own body, is just unspeakable. And the fact that it took until 1991 to realise that, I find absurd and frightening, in all honesty. Then we come to your second part, where we talk about the way that this is perceived and the way that it's defined. And the one thing that I would say is that if you went and asked people about what they thought of rape and what they thought of sexual assault, I would be able to say with a fair degree of certainty that they would say rape is considerably worse. There is a conception of what rape is and there is a conception of what sexual assault is and therefore when you have an act that can only be applied to one gender and when that act also carries a more severe punishment even though they could be one and the same because rape is, is effectively having forcing someone into sex against their own will. So regardless of whether you're a, a woman and you, you force an individual to get an erection, a, a male to get an erection and, and have sex with them, or you anally rape them, that is exactly the same concept as if a, as if a man does it. The problem you've got is that when it comes to the very definition, yeah. Yeah. the definition is archaic. Mm. And it talks about penetration. So naturally that gravitates towards male aggressors because they're the only ones that can penetrate. Although there are other forms. And that in itself is quite worrying. Because again, it looks like it's it's something that is effectively looking to almost equal up what may have happened previously in, in society where women were seen as, you know, you will stay at home, you have sex with your husband, you know, in a pre-industrial society, you have children, you, you don't really have much of a say over these things. I get that, but we, we can't equal things up. That isn't the way forward. All that's going to do is, is create division. So when you look at rape and sexual assault, the way that these two are defined and the way that these two are perceived within society, there is a huge disparity there. Mm. And that in itself The is, other form of rape, which is, is I guess, more widely believed or widely established in the mainstream, Jason, is male-on-male rape in homosexual relationships. So what are the stigmas and realities here for gay male victims? The LGBTQ plus community is probably a little bit insular. And I, I know people within that community and I did a bit of research, but some of some organisations when I when I wrote about it in the book, they're almost forgotten. That's not appropriate. Everybody in society needs to be included in this, regardless of what gender you identify with, whether you're non-binary and what your sexual orientation is, of course. So there's an argument to say that things that happen there are even more insular and 
potentially more gay men or gay women will suffer in sounds because it's part of a community and, and it's not really a seen thing to, to speak out because you can be ostracized in that community and that's not something you know that people want because they've potentially already been ostracized by society anyway so the male on male rape is is an interesting one because i heard the argument of but they're gay and they're, that's, a, they're that's something in the 1970s isn't it so why is that an issue <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I would just turn that around and say, look, I find a heterosexual woman that's sexually active with her husband. If somebody rapes her, could you apply the same logic that she's heterosexual? She already has penetrative sex with men. So why is that a problem if, if another guy does it against her will? And that, of course, then becomes laughable because it categorically isn't okay. Why are we applying it in one area but not another? And this is the problem that we have when I say there is such an almighty chasm by the way that we perceive and the way that we deal with sexual Mm. assault or rape. A Gallup report in 2018 found that 82% of lesbian women who were surveyed said they had been domestically abused. Why is no one talking about that? Because it probably doesn't suit the agenda, Freddie. If we look at the perception, the perception that society has created is that when we look at rape, when we look at sexual assault, when we look at anything that is around you know, domestic abuse, the females are ordinarily going to be the victims and, and, and men aren't. And when you look at that, what that says, when you look at the Freedom Report, for example, or the Freedom Programme, that sort of statistic blows their rhetoric out of the water, doesn't it? Because it tells you that actually women can be perpetrators and it doesn't come down to your sex or your gender. It's more likely to come down to your upbringing, your experience, maybe your social group, anything like that. When you determine whether or not someone is going to be an abuser or you're looking for the reasons as to why someone has been an abuser, I'll categorically tell you as a as a psychotherapist that gender The final and sex form of abuse I wanted to talk about quickly, Jason, before we move on to how we can change and what you think we can do to change the system is financial abuse. And the Mankind Initiative reported that of all the calls they received from male victims about domestic abuse, the highest, so seventeen percent, was for financial abuse. So how do male victims suffer from this form the same as female victims do you know financial abuse is something that is probably flies completely under the radar because you don't get the bruises you don't get the name calling you don't get the belittling you don't get the social media put down you quite simply get something that's a little bit more diplomatic that can just be a case of look you know you're no good with money I'll control the budgets or, you know, you keep spending. And we've got to be very careful with financial abuse because I've worked with people before whereby potentially the woman has kept control of the purse strings because the man might have had a gambling problem and have gambled the salary away, which has left them short on paying the mortgage and paying the bills. That isn't financial abuse. You know, this comes back to intent versus interpretation again. The intent of that isn't for any financial it's not for any psychological gain it's not to hurt anybody emotionally it's simply because actually there's a challenge here that's having a big impact on the family potentially if this continues we could lose the house that's going to have huge repercussions for all of us so i'm going to put something in place and i'll keep control of the money while you do that that in itself isn't the problem the problem is when you want to do it as part of control 
So actually, I want to control the finances. I will tell you how much money you can spend. I will give you an allowance. Sometimes because you don't want them to go and do their own things. There's that sort of undercurrent of insecurity. And you think if they go and do their own things, they might do things away from you. And you don't want that. And you, you want them to be with you all the time. Sometimes it might just be because it's a form of punishment. Sometimes it could be humiliation, show that you're in control in the relationship. And you might find other forms of abuse that exist as well. But it can be really quite debilitating for men because men see themselves still within society, although this is hopefully something we're addressing, as the main breadwinners and they need to provide for their family. So if they're not able to do that, if they don't have control over their money, if they're not able to go out and see their friends and buy things as and when they want, that can be really really quite challenging for men in terms of that perception of masculinity but financial abuse is equally as challenging for both genders it's it's not very pleasant because it means that if you are then wanting to break out to do something for yourself then your access to resources and to finances is very limited which makes it extremely difficult to to get out of a relationship if you wanted to save up and and move and go and rent another house well you can't do that because your partner has complete control of your finances so you're effectively stuck in that relationship we talked a lot about what's going wrong right now so let's talk about how we can fix it so in your perspective how do we change or improve things for men and how do we intervene to stop these female perpetrators from abusing them now or in the future the challenge that we have, Freddie, is that we are still looking at this myopically. So we still have female extreme activists that are only interested in helping female victims. And on the other side, diametrically opposed, we have the male victim activists who are only interested in supporting male victims. If you want to address domestic abuse, you must see it as a non-gendered crime. You must look beyond the sex, the sexual orientation, the gender of the individual, and look at the actual rationale behind why an individual can do it. Any woman, any man, can be a victim of domestic abuse. So if you want to tackle domestic abuse per se, you need to make it a non-gendered approach. But you also can do that by raising the profile of male victims as well. You just don't do it at the expense of female victims. What the book's been about, and this was something that I reiterated at several different junctures throughout, is it's not about creating a division. It's about addressing a divisive subject. It's about raising one profile, but not at the expense of another. We're not wanting to drop the magnifying glass from being on female abuse victims. What we're wanting to do is is to pick one up and, and shine that light on male domestic abuse victims as well. And highlight to people that domestic abuse is a very, very profoundly serious and heinous act that can affect both genders. That's the way that we change. Until we galvanise The first woman unite, to be convicted of coercive control took change. place in 2018. Now, for someone like you working in the field and speaking to a lot of clients and helping a lot of clients, was this a watershed moment for male victims to be taken seriously? Or is it just the tip of the iceberg? It's probably the tip of the iceberg it's difficult to say what impact that would have i think the only thing it did was probably set a legal precedent this stuff needs to be cascaded out if you still have constabularies and and forces who are very much under the the archaic thought of women are always victims and male are are always aggressors 
you've got to remember that it's it's how that report is taken it's who takes that report it's whether or not they record that or not and the case study one of the final case studies and i know you've got a section on case studies so i won't go into it but but it was quite frightening the fact that we have this preconceived idea still this automatic assumption of guilt by gender so whilst it was really quite positive to see that and i think it highlighted that actually you're able to now see that there are victims who are male as well and this isn't just about highlighting that males can be victims it's also about saying that females can be perpetrators as well because we can say that males are victims but we still have programs that that say that yes but that's at the hands of other males and we need to to remove that pedestal that sometimes we put women on that that means that they can't be perpetrators because they can and so can men this is the point i'm making we make it harder for abusers to hide because we unite everybody unites and gets together we look at that approach as as something that's much more holistic and we make it more aware and that's the only way that that we're going to start to even this up a little bit before we reflect and make everybody feel safe in society let me just ask you now about the case studies because you put i think it was three or four at the end of the book how hard was this part to write because not all of them survived their abuse did they no the case studies was difficult the first guy that I came across bizarrely came to talk to me in the gym a few years ago. I think I was wearing some Leeds United sort of attire and, and down the East Midlands he came up and he, he was a Leeds United fan and got talking. And he was asking me what I did and I told him what I did and said I just started writing a book. And he said, oh, do you know what, I was, I was a victim. And there and then I said, oh, how would you feel about being interviewed for the book? So you think, Jim, man probably someone you know quite strapping and he sat talking to me suddenly three or four weeks later in a coffee shop telling me about about how he was a victim of abuse a lot of it emotional but obviously the little snippet of it was physical as well everyone i interviewed with case studies it was really difficult and it was difficult because i could see and hear the pain that they were experiencing just by just by opening up and reliving it it put me in a difficult position because i really wanted to tell their story and do it for the very very best of intentions but i was also acutely aware that i was asking them to relive this and that was never easy but the the case that you allude to was a lady who lived in texas she's back in new jersey now because i do keep in touch with her and i'd commented on something around male domestic abuse victims on Twitter and she replied and I got talking to her and she told me that her uh, she called him her brother and whilst they weren't blood related they were extremely close you know grew up together so she did see him as that and, and he I believe saw her as an older sister and the reason that she was telling the story ultimately is because he couldn't because he'd lost his life and whilst this was ruled as a suicide the family uh, have raised a lot of questions with what happened previously and also how his death was was carried out and they firmly believe that this was homicide and even and something i perhaps didn't put in the book but even the way that the investigation was carried out you have to ask that question of if that had been a woman would the police have handled Mm. it in the same way as a final question on this topic jason entirely sure what has this professional journey this therapy journey and writing the book 
taught you about yourself, do you think? Um, wow. <laughs> uh, I think that one of the things that I, I learned from this was that I do really quite enjoy writing. And if it was viable, I would I would probably drop my therapeutic hours a little bit and do more writing. I have co-written a book previously on relationships, a little CBT book, and I'm just in the process of finishing up the final edits of the sequel, which will be published potentially this year, actually. There will be a third one that comes out, which may well come out next year. Next year, my plan in January is to begin writing a, a psychological thriller. So I get to move away from the realities a little bit and just write something that I can push the boundaries with and apply my knowledge and expertise uh, in a professional setting too. So I'm quite excited about that. I think it taught me that I perhaps have a lot of resilience, but also I haven't read the book, by the way. I don't. <laughs> I've read it a thousand times while I've been drafting it out and I've read the final copies. But since that was put into black and white and printed, I haven't read it and I'm not so sure I ever will. I don't know whether I'd like to or not is the honest answer. But a lot of it is emotive. And I think that it took a lot out of me and particularly those final weeks, the final editing and getting everything ready. You know, I was working till three, four o'clock in the morning trying to trying to get everything ready. I would probably do things maybe a little bit differently. I think that taking the gap that I took, I took a hiatus when I started teaching of probably about a year nearly. I wouldn't do that again. And when I read it now, and it probably isn't evident to the reader, but when I read it now, I can see where I took the break in between chapters, whereas the readers probably won't. But also, I'm, I'm very critical. That was one of the things that I really did learn. I'm very critical, and I sent it to my clinical supervisor, and I said, look, just look at this chapter in particular, because I don't like it. And I pretty much rewrote the entire chapter, because I just didn't like it. And, and when I read through the final draft, there were chapters that I thought, oh, love it. Read so well, brilliant, really get your point across well. And there were others that I just felt a little bit meh about. And I always hoped that the reader would see more of the good stuff than, than the bad stuff. And But I, I do think I was, I learned I was very overly critical of myself. We've talked about Jason, the therapist, the author, the male domestic abuse expert. I want to talk about your own journey now, Jason. So why don't you tell me about your early life, childhood, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Jason we meet here? I think the Jason that you meet here is somebody that's probably had a little bit of a tumultuous journey. So it's very difficult to say. People have extremely difficult upbringings. I didn't. I was quite fortunate. I had two loving parents and loving family and we didn't go without. And my parents sacrificed a lot. And things that you don't really realise until you get older and, and become an adult yourself and then you kind of see what really happened or they explain to you what happened because you have that level of maturity to understand that. I'm really, really grateful for that. In terms of my own mental health, I've always been a very sensitive person and there are things that I can handle, lots of them. But for me, the one thing that I've always struggled with is a relationship breakdown. So even from a young age, when I was at school dating, dating girls for a few weeks, couple of months, my, my whole world ended at that point. I think the hardest thing for me really to date to experience was that breakup in 2005. That was the one thing that I found incredibly difficult. 
and it did take me a very long time to really get through that and, and if it happened again if I was to ever separate from my wife I think I'd probably experience very similar emotions hopefully I'd be a little bit more experienced in dealing with that but I think that anything that's been relationship focused mm. has usually been my downfall you didn't in, have in a past. very traumatic childhood but you did get bullied quite badly in secondary school Jason so if you could how did that bullying start and what forms of abuse did it take and, and how did it impact your mental health at the time it's very much verbal I went from a small primary school where I was I was a tough kid to another primary school that was a bit bigger I mean I, I moved around a lot so I went to four primary schools and two secondary schools when I was younger and the final one I went to for about a year I was again one of the tough kids there and then suddenly I went to a big secondary school and rather than having 20 kids in my class and me being one of the toughest there's a couple of hundred people in your year and, and there's lots of tough kids there and it was a rude awakening from the start and then I came across one individual in particular who I was very frightened of and he was very small and you know you look back and you think you know if I saw that person now as an adult what would I think and absolutely nothing but at the time uh, this person was was quite verbally abusive towards people and, and there was that fear and I got verbal abuse and I really didn't like it and I, I started to to retreat into myself to spend time on my own away I faked illness to miss school I didn't like it but then I ended up going to another secondary school you know across the town and whilst ostensibly it was a nicer school you obviously get people from one school that know another school so it doesn't take long for the things to follow you there and also then to come across the same sort of thing which was the verbal abuse you know the name calling the mocking and I used to spend so much time on my own at school if I saw certain people coming I would move into a classroom and hide behind the door or I would turn around and go the other way and run outside and I would just pray for the bell to ring so I was back in class and I didn't have to be subjected to that and that was really hard for me I really did not like school at all and when I went to college I jettisoned a lot of that, but there's still probably one or two things that were happening there. Not to the same degree, but I wasn't entirely happy with. And I think university was a big one for me where I was able to break free from all that. I really was affected by school. I didn't like going and I don't like bullies as a result. One of Not the an easy time in all right here when some bullying victims are bullied, Jason, is that one of your survival mechanisms during the bullying was to I wouldn't say abuse but you said you picked on sort of other kids lower down the food chain to you did you feel guilty about that then or now and what do you think or why do you think sorry you did that from a psychological level I mean now I I, I feel a tremendous sorrow and regret I mean I, you know I'm thankful to say that well at the time you don't know the impact you know it's more picking up on physical features uh, that you know are really probably going to pack a punch and and try to get in with the in crowd a little bit but also you know sometimes it is about about making yourself feel better and you get that well if i'm being subjected to it why shouldn't others interestingly a few years ago i met up with a, a friend from my first secondary school that i left 
and we were sadly talking about one of the people friends that we both knew who'd passed away in his early 30s and he was talking about the funeral and he mentioned another kid that i was friends with in school but i'd had this fight with and i lost the fight phone squires lost the fight and he said that he'd seen him at, at this this individual's funeral and this lad had said to him so at this point now we're in our probably about early to mid 30s and this lad had said can you tell him i'm so sorry for that fight <laughs> and i just thought wow um what a wonderfully noble thing to say he said i feel so bad about it and i thought I wonder whether that's really sat with him. You know, at the end of the day, he, he never bullied me. He he was a friend of mine throughout school. It was just that one day we had crosswords and got into a fight and he, and he got the better of me. I, I don't hold any regrets or anything. But I just thought, I wonder what it's been like for him to suddenly say that. And I'm kind of like that. Recently, you know, as recently as a few weeks ago, when I was training to do my PGCE, I was 36 when I started doing that. And I was having to sit in a classroom for three hours a week on a night time. And I hated it because I was doing therapy around that. I had a wife. I had two dogs at the time. I was thrown into teaching, which I was just sinking, absolutely sinking. I sat with my former teacher, who's, who's a friend of mine now, and I apologised. She said, there's, there's no need. And I said, no, it's, I was really badly behaved in your class, and I, I feel quite bad about that. And that's something, obviously, from just a few years ago. So I wonder you know, what had been happening for that individual to say that after potentially 20 years. But yes, of, of course, I, I feel bad if I've ever hurt anybody. And I feel worse now because of the person that I am. When you're a kid, you don't realise the impact. We never do, not at that age. We don't have the psychological maturity to be able to, to recognise the impact of it. But now, absolutely. And it could be something that they don't even remember, but I would still love to sit with them and say, actually, I am so sorry if I, if you I caused know, Jason, you any upset by There might be people who read your book who picked on you, because I know there's people who bully me who listen to this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Oh, wow. um, it's hard to react to it, actually, but it's definitely a weird thing you have to sort of get used to in life. I want to move on to and go back to, if I can, your work as a therapist, because one thing that's so vital for therapists is professional emotional detachment. I've talked about this with Fiega Murray, who was a previous guest on this podcast, Jason, because some of the things you must hear, you must listen to actively must be just horrific at times. And I've kind of got a glimpse into that by doing this podcast and listening to so much trauma for so many of these episodes. But how do you create that detachment for yourself? Because you said sometimes it can almost trigger you to think about how those experiences might affect your own family. Is that right? Yeah. The first thing to recognise is that if you want to be professionally accredited and as a therapist, you have to have mandatory supervision. Supervision is effectively your therapy. So due to the nature of the work, I have to have 90 minutes a month where I'm able to talk to my supervisor, clinical supervisor, just another therapist, but highly qualified and qualified in the, the supervisory role. And I lean on that. I'm very, very fortunate that my supervisor is also a good friend of mine. So I'm lucky whereby if I have a really bad session, I can just send him a text message to say, if you've got five minutes, ordinarily, even though he lives in the Cayman Islands, ordinarily, he will find time to either text me and, and have a quick text chat with me or to, to have a quick video call to give me some perspective. I find it incredibly difficult at times. And I know, I don't think my wife... Well, she can't 
and I wouldn't expect her to, but she doesn't fully understand the impact it has. And sometimes, because she's my practice manager, I can give her brief insights into some of the things, but I'm very, very limited with, with what I can say. So I can maybe give an overview, but that's that's about it. If I get in here for 9.30, for example, on a Tuesday morning, I'll open my practice up about quarter to nine, and I'll get everything ready. My first client's will be at 9.30. I then get 15 minutes, and my next client's at 10.45. Then I'll have lunch. I've got one at 10 to one. Then I'll have one at two o'clock. I'll have one at quarter past three. I'll have one at four o'clock, uh, sorry, at 4.30. Then I'll have tea break. Then I get one at quarter past six, and then I get one at 20 past seven. So from getting into my practice at quarter to nine in the morning, I won't be ready to sit and wind down until about half past eight at night. And I don't get much time in between. So I can work with up to seven clients in a day. And if I'm working with clients who have lost children, lost friends, been raped, been domestically abused, miscarried, people who live in with addicts, that's my life every day. I'm immersed in that sort of material. And sometimes it's not that easy to just detach. And also because I work for myself and I have my private practice, I find that I never ever switch off. So I'm answering text messages and emails late into the night into the weekend so you know when people say well you only work four yeah. days actually i probably work 24 7 i'm never out of of reach really from my clients so i pray i really naturally gravitate towards my supervisor and he he's absolutely brilliant i have such a good relationship with him so it's great that i i can have that downtime sometimes my wife's great she just knows and she'll just give me a hug when i get in or if i say that was a really bad session. You know, she knows she knows that she doesn't ask for any sort of specific details. And I can't just say, you know, working with bereavement or I'm working with someone that's just lost the, the child. But obviously I can't really go into to specifics. So I find it hard and sometimes I just need a bit of time out, go for a long walk and just have that downtime. But you were right in what you said. As soon as I became a dad, things changed for me. You know, when people used to come and see me before and they would talk about losing children, naturally I was so devastated for them and felt so upset. But I couldn't truly understand what it might feel like, and still I don't. But what I do now that I never used to do is as soon as they tell me this, I think of my daughter. That is hard to go through so many times. It's not just that it happens the first time. Every time somebody tells me about losing a child I think of losing my daughter and that's where my mind goes to and I have to pull myself back and every time I sit with someone who lost the father at a young age I imagine and visualize my daughter at my funeral and that and I'm getting emotional now that breaks my heart and it's it's so so difficult and I can't I can't ever get anybody to understand what that really feels like. If it was once, that's one thing. But this is this is every time I work with clients, and I work with 100 hours in a month. So you imagine how many times I think about these things. And it gets harder. And I think probably the reason why I now have become very, very strict with myself and I categorically don't work Friday, Saturday or Sunday 
I have to. Let's have talk that about the positive aspect of what you just talked about there, Jason. So, fatherhood is something that you spoke to me off air about, and it wasn't something you were expecting to happen to you because you became a father relatively late. So, when it did happen, was it extra special? Unbelievably. I, I never. It, children wasn't something that my wife and I sat and said, we won't have children. It was always something we said it'd be kind of nice, but we just enjoyed the lifestyle. So I think it was just that it didn't become a we're not having any. It became it's probably not going to be on the agenda. I private practice. My wife teaches. We have new cars every three years. We we live in a a really nice four bedroom detached house. We can holiday every year, and we really liked that. At the time, we we had two dogs, which uh, sadly we, we don't have anymore. But we loved that lifestyle. And children just weren't on the agenda. And I remember in 2018, in the summer, we were going to Mexico. Now, you've got to remember, if if I paint the picture for you here, Freddie, my wife has stage four endometriosis. And without wanting to go into the details of that, it effectively makes it extremely difficult for her to conceive. She was told at 17 there was a, a good chance she would never have children. So this stage four endometriosis had got about as bad as it was going to get at the end of our holiday, which was which was going to be in, in July of 18 in Mexico. She was due to have quite serious and invasive surgery. So that, that tells you how bad it was. So the chances of her getting pregnant were, I would say in our mind, almost zero. And then we returned from Mexico, realised something wasn't quite right, and a couple of days later found out she was pregnant. And uh, <laughs> I must admit, I was teaching at the time. Thankfully, I was in the office on my own because I was walking around. I was walking around days when I got the phone call, didn't know what to do, what to think, didn't know whether I felt over the moon, whether I felt really, oh God, everything's going to change, do I want this? What I would say is that there was never any point where we talked about anything other than having a child there was nothing ever crossed our minds about any other permutation and i guess that we were both very nervous because of endometriosis mm. you know would she carry to term were we going to lose it and i think that for me i really did hold back quite a lot during that period i didn't allow myself to get overly excited because I didn't, there was still that part of me that believed it wouldn't happen and then, of course, she was induced. We went into hospital for the weekend, and it was wonderful room to ourselves. And I was there through the entire thing in, in April 1st, 2019. The most amazing thing happened, and my daughter Isla was born. And fatherhood has been an absolute whirlwind. And one of the things that I would say is that I am in absolute awe as to just how naturally my wife took to motherhood. I know everybody says this about their wives or partners, but she is the most amazing mother. I couldn't have handpicked anyone to better raise our daughter. She's such an I think that's a lot of dads, to be fair, mate. And I probably <laughs> uh, eked my way into fatherhood a little bit. And yeah, and almost, you know, you know, naturally the, the original bond is between the mother and and the daughter and I get that and I always hope she'd be a daddy's girl but still at the moment she's she's two and a half and she's at a point where everything's just mom 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 that also saddens me because she doesn't see me as much as she should do I'm in here I can get addressed I can take her to crash on a couple of days that she goes to crash and I'm in here and 
if she's at creche, I don't see her at dinner time. I just see her at tea time. And then by the time I get in, sometimes she may be awake, sometimes she's asleep. So with writing a book and and then really the amount of therapy that I've been doing, I've, I've had to take a sense check and say that I need that family time with her. And I need just me and her time for me to, to really bond with her. But I absolutely love fatherhood. It's, it is challenging. And I'm sure every parent will, will say the same. And and it's it's harder for me because I know that a lot of things will happen and I just have to come out here and, and my wife has to, to deal with it. And, and I'm eternally grateful to her. But I'm at a point now where if, you know, sometimes like if my wife's teaching, it's not right that she should have to make all the sacrifices. So if my daughter's ill, I will just cancel all my clients for that day and I'll work on a different day or I'll work well, well into the evening or on the weekend to fit people in. But I I will take that time out because it gives me the chance to bond with her. But also it's not right for my wife to feel that her career is is any less important than mine. What has it given your mental health? Um, (laughs) The things that I do now, when I'm having a bad day, I try to... I try to think of her because she is that shining light for me and everybody says the same about children you have to go from that point where suddenly your partner's your priority to they're not your priority anymore you know your sole priority is your child and your partner comes secondary to that and every relationship where there is a child involved you know should usually accept that it happens naturally but I think that Sometimes if I'm having a really bad day and I'm sat in my practice now and I've I've got a, a nice little sort of picture of the three of us and I've got pictures of just me and her as, as a baby and then me and her when she was not too long ago, less than 12 months ago, you know, and the canvas up in here. And I, I really like that stuff because my wallpaper on my on my PC screen is of my wife and daughter and that's, that's the sort of stuff that's really important to me. So... It does help. And when I have a bad day, I kind of look at those photos. And when I come inside, I'll give her an extra big squeeze at tea time when I see her. And yeah, I think that the positives vastly outweigh the the sleepless nights and the phase where she's starting to develop her own personality, say no to things and throw things across the room at you. (laughs) Let's reflect on your journey now, Jason. So how have all these experiences shaped into the person you are today? What have they taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that 14-year-old Jason who was being bullied or the 25-year-old Jason who was struggling to process the end of a relationship or the 36-year-old Jason who was stuck in teaching, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I know it's really cliched. It's probably not something that I would ordinarily propagate, but sometimes it's about hanging tight and thinking about what matters in life and understanding that there is always a way out of anything, regardless of what you're in. There is you know, any situation, whether it's a relationship, a job, you know, a friendship, that there is always that way out to change things. And sometimes it's about showing that, that mental toughness, and but not being afraid to ask for help. I have never been afraid to go to people and just enlist their help and say, hey, here's where I am now. I'm not really keen on it. I really need to get here. And I think you might be able to help me. What can you do? What can we do together? And not being afraid to take that step. You know, in 2013, I went and I began doing therapy. In 2012, I'd started, you know, the Relay Institute, Diploma Level 5. And I knew that there was going to be work involved. 
and I knew where I wanted to be ultimately, but I knew that I just had to do everything I possibly could to make it happen. I had to go to college and have them conversations. I had to, I had to write that proposal out for college to, to see whether they would work with me and have me as a, an affiliate counselor, someone that they referred to. I had to reach out and even now I'm working, you know, starting work with different organizations and just realizing that there are things that you really can and you should potentially enlist help for to get you on the right track. But then also you can show there's an inner strength in every one of us. And all of us can show that willpower to, to just sit down and say, look, what is it that I need to do and how, how do I get there? And I always said, one of the things that always kept me going when I was in teaching is that if this ever gets to a point where you can't hack it, you can just quit. Okay. Yes, there might be financial implications, but you can quit. You are not forced to be here. You know, you can go and find something else and you might have taken pay cut and cut your cloth accordingly, but you can quit anytime you want you can walk out at the end of today and never go back and that used to keep me going because i knew that as an absolute worst case scenario i had that individuality i had that option to do that what would i say to my to my 14 year old self be very mindful of inflicting on people what's been inflicted on you think of the hurt that, that you are experiencing and think that that one comment that you think is funny that everybody else uses to that person could be that thing that pushes that person over the edge. And now I work with people who've probably had those sort of comments in childhood or growing up as adolescents and are now dealing with it and I'm helping them to deal with that as a therapist. So that's the one thing I would say. The 25 year old me would be a little bit more difficult. I would just say it's happened. It's really uncomfortable. It's gonna hurt like hell for a while just accept that it's going to hurt like hell for a while. But the biggest piece of advice that I give people, and this is one of the reasons why I quite like the Jungian approach as well, don't seek perfection. And when you're looking at relationship, and this is one of the things that helped me when ultimately I realized it myself, when you're looking at a relationship breakup, one of the things that really keeps us in that relationship area and that area of mourning and going through that that process of, of loss is the fact that we expect and we think that we should be over that person 100%. And then the associated feelings that, of course, are inevitable disappointment when that doesn't happen and feel like we're still immersed in it. Allow yourself that 5%. There'll be that 5% where you will see something, you'll smell a perfume, you will hear something, whether it's a song, and it will take you back to a memory and it will make you smile. That is okay. If you try to get over somebody 100% and remove everything about them, it's not going to happen. And you're going to stay in that grieving process because you're going to think that you're not ready, but actually you are ready. So that's what I would say to me. And to the guy stuck in teaching, I would just say, you know, it's not pleasant. Hang tight and follow what you really want to do. And that's ultimately what I did. I, I took that advice from myself that actually you're 38, 39, you're in A-levels now, you're really not enjoying it. Go out there and find how you get to enjoy what you do full-time. And that was, like I say, just a, a very chance conversation with a clinical supervisor that got me to that point. So I, I think that, yes, enlist the help of other people, but also set out a plan.
What is it you want to achieve? Because motivation comes from two places. There's either a desire to achieve something or a desire really to not achieve something, to avoid it at all costs. So in that, for me, it was that I really wanted to be a therapist, but probably the bigger pull was I really didn't want to be a teacher anymore. That was my motivation. We have come to our final topic of conversation on the podcast, Jason, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health at the moment? I feel uh, I feel okay. I've been a little bit physically unwell, so it's probably drained me a little bit. But ultimately, I don't feel in a bad place. I think I, I need to be in a good place for the work that I do. So I tend to try to take Friday to Sunday to recharge. And then I'm ready to And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues morning. or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I have absolutely no problem disclosing mental health. I'd be in the wrong profession if I felt that you shouldn't do that. I do sometimes feel things in terms of if things are tough at home, which inevitably they are in, in every relationship, I feel that and I can get quite, quite flat with that. Anything where it really comes as i said at the at the start any challenges i deal with but when it comes to relationships i struggle with so if ever there there are challenges for me in the marital home i tend to find that a little bit more difficult to deal with and probably then my clients become a distraction at that point and my therapy work becomes my go-to what my, age do you think you were my safe place when you first realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they are actually in your mind and a product of your mental health. When did you become self-aware of your mental health? I think probably at school. One of the, the reasons why I was bullied in my first secondary school was because I was already having a hard time. And I went to hospital with suspected appendicitis. And what they ascertained was that it wasn't. It was another condition that was linked to my nerves. So it was almost psychosomatical. It, it had the psychological origin and it was having a uh, manifesting itself physically. And I was telling one of my school friends aged you know, 12 at this point about the procedures that they needed to do to test for this. And he told someone else and it got overheard and then suddenly it spread like wildfire. It wasn't pleasant. And suddenly, you know, uh, nicknames were made up and I became the brunt of the jokes. And I think at that point I realised when I was feeling really uncomfortable, when I started to get those cramps in my stomach because I didn't want to go to school, I knew that it was psychological. I knew that I was really struggling with, with what's going on and I didn't want to handle it. And I'd say that, you know, probably as early as 12, I didn't have an in-depth and expansive awareness of mental health like I do now. It was just simply knowing that something wasn't right and actually the issue wasn't physical can you remember the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what did you say and what impact did it have on you did it feel like a big part of you had changed or you had entered a new chapter in your life or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normal to do i think the first time i mean you know when i started university i i saw a girl for about a week or two and then ended up stopping eating and locking myself in my room for weeks because I just couldn't handle it and you know I talked to a friend at that point about it the first in-depth conversation about me and my mental health probably came 
age 25 when I separated from, from the girl that I'd been seeing. And I went to see a therapist over in Sheffield about that. And that was probably when I first really started to open up. But I used to talk to my uncle. I was very close to my uncle and still am. He's gone through several marital breakdowns and, and emotional breakdowns as well. And I've always been there for him. We've always talked openly about how we both feel about things. That was good because he was someone that I've always really trusted and felt like I could be completely and utterly open with. So I probably started talking to him maybe around 18, 19 years old. But when you talk about an actual professional, that would be what when I went to What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? It's a little bit strange, this, because when I work with clients, I, I tell them the importance of them having to find something ultimately that works for them. And it's not about what works for me, it's what works for them. So I used to find that uh, walking at night time was very cathartic for me. Put my music in and go and walk at night time. When I had the dogs, I used to, on a Saturday morning before Isla came along, I used to go out with them when I woke up and it didn't matter what time. So anything from half past three in the morning up until maybe about half past five in the morning, six o'clock, I would just get up. If I woke up at four, I got the dogs up, I got a playlist together, put my headset in, got wrapped up, pitch black and off we went for an hour, an hour and a half and I loved it. And when I was coming through my relationship breakup back in 2005, I spent probably about six months, I lived in a really nice area in Sheffield, and when it got dark, I used to put my headset in and go out walking for an hour. That was my serenity, that was peace for me. I found that really quite quite nice. That's what still does work for me. In terms of what doesn't work for me, people, and again, this is quite an open conversation that I've had with clients, People will, I know people that have lost relatives and gone back to work in days. <laughs> and as a person, put my feelings of therapist aside, as a person, I don't know how people can do that. When you go through something like that, there's one or two things happen. You either throw yourself into something or you can't throw yourself into anything because you're completely distracted. I fall into the latter category. So one thing that doesn't work for me is, you know, if, if something really traumatic happens to me, like, for example, when I lost both of my dogs, it was extremely, you know, they were part of the family. I took that extremely badly. I cancelled therapy for three days and had five or six days in total off. I couldn't sit in here and throw myself into my client work. I, I couldn't physically do that. So it's whatever works for you ultimately. But for me, throwing yourself into something like that doesn't work. I need to be able to have time with it to understand it. Talk about it. two ideas on this podcast with guests, Jason. Toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Now, during the course of this series, this podcast, 140 odd episodes, my opinion on both of them has changed somewhat. I believe that toxic masculinity as a term is oftentimes overused in conversations oftentimes for things that I don't believe it relates to but I also believe it does exist in some form and I believe that if you can nip it in the bud in school which is when it often starts kind of you think about the stereotypical idea that you know you look at a group of teenage boys and acting sort of toxically towards girls or toxically within each other and hopefully in a few more years in a few more pods maybe it can be in a very small minority I also talk about positive masculinity because 
I believe that there are qualities that we can espouse or we can shape to show that masculinity is not something negative. And hopefully in a few more years, positive masculinity is just masculinity. So what is your perspective on both these terms? I think when it comes to toxic masculinity, we need to also be mindful that there is toxic femininity as well. So you are just as, as likely to see groups of girls potentially at school that are mocking boys than you are. Um, the reputational you know, damage aspect, isn't girls. it? Jordan Peterson sort of talks about that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, again, when we look at this, we need to remove the gender from it. When you look at the phrases, patriarchal society, toxic masculinity, it's very damning towards men. It one it can antagonize and alienate men and they can feel like they're always perpetrators or even aggrieved at what's being levied against them. But also that women are always victims and we have to be mindful of that, that in both situations, that's not the case. So we need to look at calling... Mm -hmm. uh, Toxic human behavior. That's what it is. We, We are looking at... Yeah, toxic, toxic, and address it as toxic human behavior. You don't need to challenge it as a gender. You need to challenge it as as one holistically, and and that's one of the things that we need to be mindful of. And you know, positive masculinity, positive role models, positive feminist role models in school. So strong female teachers that are really good role models for, for young girls that are coming through. Strong male teachers, and when I say strong, mm-hmm. I, I don't mean physically. I mean people that are, are very confident, that are very empathic, that are very good at what they do, that have clearly worked hard on, on that path that can show women, firstly, hey, you know, work hard, girls, and, and this is where we can get to. And the same for, for the men as well. So we need to look at, again, it's another example of jettisoning that gendered approach and and finding something Mm. that removes the gender. As a final question, and again, there's no right or wrong answer, just like the previous questions. I have a lot of different perspectives on it from different guests. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if... They want to do it. Firstly, you have to remove the stigma in society. So you have to remove the stigma around mental health. You also have to remove the myth of masculinity, that men are big and brave and and don't need to talk about things and should be in control because it's a completely erroneous concept. We are vulnerable as men. We are vulnerable as women. And whatever societal perception is, you know, we're we're living on very archaic and pre-industrial views that men are the providers, you know, that men need to earn more money. We don't live in an egalitarian society, by the way, and I'm very much a proponent for making it more of an egalitarian society. If you're going to placate both sides, then one of the things you need to do is to, to be able to even things up on many counts. So men need to feel that they're able to to stand up and, and raise issues of being abused. We need to look at the, the way that sexual abuse and, and rape is documented. And women need to feel that they're in a society where they are treated equally, that they can get equally paid jobs and they aren't seen as, as subordinate or a weaker sex. So we need to categorically have that egalitarian society. But men need to feel comfortable reporting things. And the way they're going to do that is if they feel that they're going to be taken seriously, not only by authorities, but by society. So we need to get rid of people who who laugh 
at the fact that a man might have been slapped or had a drink thrown on his face by his partner, by his female partner. We need to get rid of the fact that people will laugh, men and women, at the fact that a man's had his, his sexual performance, the size of his manhood, ridiculed on social media. Because whilst ever we have things like that, people aren't going to want to come forward. Jason Hansen, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast, mate. Pleasure. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Jason for being my special guest on this episode, for telling me the stories of male domestic abuse victim survivors and this world, which is so rarely covered in the mental health conversation. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Jason on social media and, of course, buy his book in the show notes. I will sign us off by saying, as always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, maybe tell your family. If you're feeling generous, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with those precious algorithms. If you like what we're doing at Vents and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. That link is on our link tree and in all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to bet.